Welcome in episode number four of MILB.com's The Show Before the Show, the Minor League Baseball Podcast. My name is Tyler Mon, Jake Siner out of New York City. Jake, tell me what you can see from the window today. I, I got a lot of construction. I got we got the, the Google <laughs> building right across the street, and the Google building looks looks great, but there's a lot of construction going on on the street. Are you always just terrified that they're watching you permanently? So they're not only across the street, they're on the floor below us, too. I so thought I, I remember that. From assume I everything I put in a Gmail is like... <laughs> I don't know how the internet works, but I imagine the tube in which my, my emails are going through Google headquarters is like the shortest tube there it is. It goes directly from your desk one floor down. Yep. Yep. <laughs> exactly so right. We are uh, like two full weeks now into the 2015 minor league season, and uh, we've already had a ton of crazy stuff. We've had no hitters all over the place, guys hitting for cycles. Uh, we've had there four, was no fox, hitters. four no hitters, a fox on the field in Charleston a couple weeks ago. Um, I don't think we've had any other weird animal i don't think we've we had, we had we had phil murray carrying the mayor of charleston out <laughs> bitch um that was a good one i like that speaking one speaking of weird animals bill murray <laughs> why didn't he come with a, a gopher that would have been fantastic just, uh, he's done that yet actually that's the big one i know he, i know he did he uh, he introduced all of the charleston players their new york yankees affiliate had them all come out onto the field in new york city caps taxi cabs which i thought was pretty good that was a nice that time. is outstanding that of all the front offices to work in if you've got one where bill murray just stops by every once in a while i would imagine that makes things right. a little bit a little bit of pressure on the emotional department <laughs> yeah that's true but we are uh yeah we're fully into it now um and we've already seen a handful of very sizable promotions which we will talk about coming up here uh in today's episode of uh the show before the show episode number four uh chicago obviously is welcoming in on a lot of top talent uh we've seen guys moving from from double A to triple A already. There's been all kinds of movement, all kinds of prospects already on the way, and it's been it's been a very eventful first couple of weeks. And let's dive into it with uh, our edition of Three Strikes for episode number four. And we're going to start things off with strike one down in the Florida State League. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Florida State League coming up here in a short period of time with our good pal Benjamin Hill, who was at the Florida State League just last week. But before we do that, we're going to talk about one of the most promising young arms in the St. Louis Cardinals organization who is thriving already in the FSL, and that's Alex Reyes, who is 20 20 years old out of Elizabeth, New Jersey, and has been fantastic for Palm Beach Shake. Yeah, the, uh, we saw a couple reports coming out of opening day that he hit 100 miles an hour a few times in his first start. I followed up and talked to a couple of the coaches down there, and they confirmed he's not only touching 100 mile, miles an hour, but he's getting there pretty consistently. Um, he was there three or four times in his second start and about the same on opening day, maybe a couple more times in opening day. So we're looking at getting close to, to 10 times. He's hit 100. He's averaged 98 miles an hour on his fastball in his first start. And he's a guy who's he's always been a hard thrower, um, and he's been a guy. He's only 20 years old now, so when he signed, he looked like a guy who might be able to add a little bit of good weight and pick up a little velocity. And now we're seeing that coming, and, and then some. Averaging 98 miles an hour in his first start, that's up from he was usually sitting 93 to 95 last year. Just for comparison's sake, I looked into who's leading the majors in average fastball velocity this year. It's Jordan Ventura is averaging at 96.2. So if what the the pitching coach down in Palm Beach, Randy Neiman, was telling me was was accurate about averaging 98 miles an hour, that's something we're not really seeing at the major league level right now and granted Reyes is pitch count with throwing 100 and 110 pitches and keeping that velocity up but it's still notable when a guy is is making that big a jump velocity wise um but he's more than just the, the big fastball either uh too he's uh 
uh, last year, one of the big things he worked with at Class A Peoria with pitching coach Jason Simantachi was working on his changeup. It was a pitch that was really behind the rest of his repertoire uh, when he signed out of the Dominican. Um, something with Simantachi, they were able to bring that pitch up to where it was maybe a fringe average pitch at best and usually well below that to where it was pretty consistently average to above average uh, by the end of the year last year. And it's gotten even just a little bit better in spring training this year and in the early going. Uh, Randy Neiman said it's at least an average pitch for him, not an above average pitch, and he thinks he could still get a little bit better. He's using the pitch against right-handed and left-handed hitters, which is kind of rare for a 20-year-old kid. Sometimes you'll see a, he's a right-handed pitcher. You'll see him use that against lefties, but not be so confident in it to, to go with it against right-handed pitchers, especially when you have a good breaking ball like Reyes does. Uh, but he's been using the changeup against hitters on both sides. Uh, and right now, actually, the biggest thing for him is working on the curveball. He's a guy who can get a ton of spin, a ton of rotation on the ball, and create a lot of movement. He's had trouble locating that pitch, though. So that's something that him and Neiman are working on and something that, that they said he actually really approved on just between his first start and his second start. Uh, it was the focus of the bullpen session they had and, and thought that he was much better at locating that his second time out. Uh, results have been really good. He's got 20 strikeouts through 10 and a third innings. He's starting again on Tuesday. We're recording this Tuesday afternoon, so by the time you listen to this, he'll probably have another 10 strikeouts or so if uh, he just stays on the pace he's at. Um, but definitely you look at guys who manage to do something that's going to kind of jump their prospect stock a little bit. Um, it's kind of tough to judge too much for a hitter on a small sample, a couple weeks, judge on a pitcher. But when you see things on the scouting report that are jumping out like Reyes is doing, that's something you want to take note of early in the season. Um, and speaking of guys who've, who've gone through uh, some changes early in the season, that leads us into strike two. Tyler, I know you've been a little bit on the Peter O'Brien beat over with the Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, told us, I think in the first podcast we talked a little about O'Brien, but I know you've written about him, that he was working at catcher and the Diamondbacks thought he was going to stay at catcher. And now he he is working in the outfield. I wonder if you can tell us what uh, what happened there. Yeah, well, kind of an interesting story the way that he has been, um, I don't want to say really moved around yet by the Diamondbacks because it's something that he's been somewhat used to over the last couple of years in the Yankees organization. But uh, O'Brien did start the spring this year working as a catcher. That was kind of his thing going into the 2015 season, acquired by the Diamondbacks in a trade last year, obviously. Worked uh, in the outfield with the Yankees, played a little of first base with the Yankees, but the Diamondbacks sent him into spring training this year as a catcher now during spring training some issues popped up with his throwing uh it wasn't just getting the ball back to the mound there were some times where throwing down to third base after strikeouts was an issue but the diamondbacks didn't seem to think that that was going to be a problem for him going forward uh i actually talked with mike bell the uh director of player development for the diamondbacks who said that they weren't worried about it this is back in about mid-march said they were positive that he would iron it out he said quote it's challenging game when you're bouncing around from position to position Position. There are different arm angles. He'll be fine with it and put the work into it that, need, that he needs to. He's done a good job. But now he's not there anymore. He's playing in the outfield. He's been in the outfield for Reno. Uh, I think the the thing with, with Peter O'Brien... His bat was going to carry him no matter what. I mean, whether he was an outfielder, whether he was a first baseman, whether he was a catcher, everybody knows that his carry tool is that bat, that power bat. He was, everybody talks about the Gallo and Bryant chase for the home run title last year. Peter O'Brien, until he injured himself uh, in August, was really right in the mix. I think he was one or two home runs behind those guys at the time he went down with an injury while with double A Mobile after he fouled the ball off of his shin. So, 
the bat is what you look for with O'Brien anyway. The interesting thing has been that the Diamondbacks kind of, I think, settled on this plan to keep him behind the plate and then moved out of that rather quickly, and now he's in the outfield with Reno. So I, if I was somebody who was observing this as an, a vested observer with, with Peter O'Brien, I would think to myself, at least just let him stick somewhere. He seems to be comfortable in the outfield. He gave a really good quote to uh, Chris Jackson in his special story to MILB.com this week and said, uh, quote, it, it's great. I feel good out there. I'm really athletic, so it feels nice. So it's obviously not a transition that O'Brien is really struggling with, uh, but I, the thing that impresses me most about it He's really had no troubles adjusting offensively. Uh, and so many times you see guys who make a position change and then struggle with the bat because they can't get things figured out defensively. Through 12 games so far this season, Peter O'Brien is OPSing 1195. He's batting 404 with four homers and 14 runs batted in. So it doesn't seem like it's affecting him much of the plate, which is a really, really good thing to see. Uh, another guy who knows what it's like to feel the, the trade wins affect a career. Zach Eflin, who is now a member of the Philadelphia Phillies organization, formerly with the San Diego Padres, 21-year-old right-hander out of Orlando, Florida. Zach traded last year and is off to a roaring start for Reading in the Eastern League, Jake. Yeah, he's uh, definitely he's got two starts so far, 14 innings. He hasn't allowed a run yet. He's been getting a ton of ground balls, which really is kind of a credit to the Padres. Eflin pitched in the California League last year for Lake Elsinore, which, you know, anything about the California League, you know that's not a place where you want to let the ball get up in the air. Pop-ups turn into home runs out there. Um, so the Padres last year, they really challenged Eflin to take his two-seam fastball. He's got a fastball that works low to mid-90s, can touch up to, to 97. And they wanted him to really work on the shape of the two-seam fastball and the location to work on getting ground balls that's something he did a really really good job with last year he went from the year before being a guy who had a 45 percent ground ball rate up to i think it was 54 percent last year in the california league and he's done more of the same this year he's keeping the ball down in the zone he's getting a lot of ground balls he's got uh, you know i think one and a half times as many fly outs as ground outs has been continuing to do that that's been working as he's moved up the ladder his best pitch is his changeup, and it has been for a while that's a pitch he's a right-handed hit pitcher who can use that pitch to guys on both sides of the plate What's really been lacking for Eflin in the past has been his breaking ball. He In high school, he threw what he called a knuckle curve um, and wasn't really a, a good pitch. He described it as being very slurvy. It was, it was not a, a thing that was really going to fool professional hitters. So he scrapped that pretty early in his professional career, and he's been trying to work on a really hard slider that some people think looks more like a cutter. He calls it a slider, and he kind of tries to use it like a slider. Um, really, has been an inconsistent pitch for him through most of his minor league career, but this year he thinks he's, he's made some adjustments and I mean, so much adjustments, just getting comfortable with the release and talks about staying with the ball out in front of him and, and really pulling that ball down in front of him. Um, for the first time on Sunday, he said he was using that pitch really as a swing and miss pitch to right-handed hitters, which is a big deal. He's a guy who's had some weird platoon splits in the past. He's actually pitched much better to left-handers than to right-handers, which is probably because of that fastball changeup combination. That slider is a much better pitch against hitters that hit from the same side that you throw. So if you're a right-handed pitcher, you're going to use that slider against right-handed hitters. Um, he's really neutralized right-handed hitters this year. I think they have one hit and 30 at-bats is what the math was. So that's that's a big deal if Eflin is going to make that pitch, even just an average pitch in his arsenal to go with a, a an above-average fastball and probably a plus changeup. So if he can have that, that average breaking ball to go with it, that means the Phillies pretty much picked up a mid-rotation pitcher who, if that slider is ready to go right now, there's no reason he can't be in Philadelphia and pitching pretty effectively in that rotation at some point this year. And that's something, obviously, the Phillies fans have really been aching to hear is that they've got guys on the way who are going to make an impact and, and be at the major league level relatively quickly, and Zach Eflin could certainly be one of those guys. That wraps up our uh, episode number four edition of Three Strikes. Really excited for our episode number four interview here 
here on the show before the show where we are going to talk with the guy who has been uh, making a lot of headlines, especially over his start to the 2015 season. Houston Astros number two prospect Mark Appel joins us on the show next. We are super excited for our first guest of episode number four of MILB.com's The Show Before the Show podcast as Houston Astros prospect Mark Appel joins us live from beautiful Whataburger Field at Corpus Christi, Texas. For a second, I looked on the uh, Hooks website tonight, and I thought that it was your headshot up, and I was like, wait a minute, Mark's starting, and he's going to talk to us? That can't be good, but it's not, so we're fine. <laughs> no, no, it's not, and I, I don't think I'd probably be able to. I, I think right now, if I were pitching, I'd be stretching out getting ready for the game so well it's been a heck of a start for the season already for you but mark before we dive into your start i want to ask you about something that happened last night uh at whataburger field in corpus christi carlos Correa hits a home run good game very good game between you guys and the tulsa drillers the two to one hooks lost but tony kemp made a catch in center field last night that like he it was like he had a space suit on he was like floating in the middle of center field fully <laughs> off his feet diving made a grab. what was the reaction in the dugout or wherever you were in the bullpen or charting or wherever you happened to be last night when tony made that catch uh, yeah I was, I was actually charting in the stands and uh, I mean, everyone was just amazed that, at the, the play that he made. Um, and it, it, I mean, Tony's very athletic, and he can do very acrobatic things on the field. And so, uh, personally, I was not surprised that he made a play like that. Um, and I, I told him, joking around, I was like, you know what, my first, my first, uh, my first reaction was, oh man, that's that's such an unnecessary dive. And then <laughs> I was like, but it it looked so cool. Um, and I mean, it, I don't think he would have been able to make the play if he didn't jump for it. So, uh, I mean, he's, he's a great player and, you know, that's the first game he's played in the outfield in a couple of years, I think. And so, I mean, he, he's just so versatile and, and, and just athletic goes and gets the ball, plays hard. Um, and, and that's a result of just, you know, his athleticism and his instinct going to get the ball and, and, and him making a play. Yeah, I know, Mark, we want to pick your brain a little bit about sort of just your sort of the path you've taken as a professional so far. But I want to actually start just with this year uh, through two starts. You got a .9 ERA, you're 2-0, eight strikeouts and 10 innings. It seems like the results have been really good. Reports on your stuff have been really good. just wanted to start by asking kind of what's been going well for you uh, this spring and, and in your first couple starts with, with Corpus Christi this year. Well, you know, I guess it kind of goes back towards the end of last season um, when I started to have a little bit of success here in Corpus. And, you know, I wanted to kind of keep that momentum going into the fall league and into the soft season. And, and you know, uh, I felt like I had a good fall league and I had a good off season just, uh, you know, in the in the weight room and, and throwing some bullpens um, and kept that going through spring training. And, and you know, I, I just kind of want to, uh, you know, just – make this par for the course, um, you know, about what to expect, uh, you know, just from my end and also from, you know, I guess fans or, or, you know, our coaches, my teammates, um, you know, I know last year had a lot of ups and downs. Um, and I know that that isn't who I was, um, or who I am. And so I'm, you know, I'm very grateful to be here in Corpus and, and to be able to get off to a, a, decent start um the first couple games i mean and it's not it's not me i mean uh tyler heineman's caught me both times um it's called a great game we've made great defensive plays uh we've hit the ball really well um you know we have a lot of a lot of talented uh players here here at corpus 
Mark, let's talk a little bit about last season because obviously uh, the the time you spent in Lancaster had some ups and downs. You really started to settle down into June, but then the Astros took the step of promoting you despite the fact that everybody thought, oh, Mark's really struggling in high A. The Astros had the confidence in you to promote you to double A where you surged and finished the year really strong, and then obviously you were dominant in the Arizona Fall League. To get that jump to double A last year, what did that do for you confidence-wise and mentality-wise? Have a change of scenery, go you know different routes of the ballpark, maybe a little bit different routine. What did that do for you to kind of get you on track toward the end of the season? Uh, you know, I, I think it helps. Um, you know, kind of a change of scenery always helps. But honestly, I think the real change happened uh, probably a week, week and a half before I got called up. Um, the, you know, there's a lot of circumstances that I went through um, and, and just uh, me having to try to show a little bit of resiliency and, and, and a little little bit of fight back uh, to – you know, it, it's so easy for a pitcher to get caught up in the stats and say, oh, you know, if I have a bad game, so on and so forth, it's a, uh, it, the season's ruined. There's no way I can salvage my ERA or anything like that. Um, and, you know, for, for me, I, I really realized that you really, you know, it doesn't matter what's happened in the past and it doesn't really matter what's ha- going to happen in the future. Um you know, all you've been given is the day that you have. Uh, whether you're pitching that day or not, you have an opportunity to make the most of it and to to get better as a as a player, as a teammate. And so, um, you know, that was one of those things that uh, if I didn't go through all that, you know, all the stuff that I went through in Lancaster and and before even you know spring training with the appendectomy. Um, you know, I wouldn't have learned. And, and so I'm very grateful for the time I had in Lancaster because of the lessons that I learned. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm able to, to apply it right now. Yeah, you, met, you mentioned some of the circumstances and things going on at Lancaster and the appendectomy. I think the, the narrative a lot of people are sort of drawing is that you had the appendectomy and then just physically maybe weren't right or something was off when you came back and started the year with Lancaster. I'm curious just how accurate you think that narrative is, if there's something to that and just kind of what you think, what um, went, went wrong in Lancaster that you've kind of been able to improve and grow off of uh, this year? Yeah, well, I think that that's a huge part of it because, you know, I was optimistic about being able to pitch and recover. Um, you know, we were, we were on a four-day rotation, um, you know, had three days off in between our, our games. It was very, very difficult for me uh, to be able to recover and and, you know, get that feeling. I always felt like I was just – you know, trying to catch my breath. And then before I knew it, it was my time to pitch again. And, and I just never was able to recover fully. Um, you know, but we obviously, you know, tried to address the issues and, and, you know, part of that involved a a month or so and extended spring training, which, you know, is never fun as a, as a, you know, as a player trying to get to the big leagues, but, um, I would have rather, you know, I told them I'd rather do that and get the work that I need then continue to feel like I'm trying to just catch my breath in Lancaster. Um, and so I think that time and it extended really helped um, to clear my mind, to just uh, get my body right to the point where I was recovering, um, you know, to hopefully pitch every fifth day once I, you know, once I get to the big leagues, you know, but, you know, we still haven't gotten to that point within um you know, just with the the pitching rotations that we have. So, uh, but needless to say, it was one of those things where, um, 
being able to go back to extended and get the work that I needed helped, even though I didn't have success initially. Once I got back to Lancaster, um, it, it, I think it really helped me kind of get my feet wet with feeling a little bit physically better. Um, and then from there, it's just, you know, getting my, you know, delivery down the, the mechanics of it, um, you know, just kind of almost taking baby steps of kind of just my approach to the game and stuff like that, getting back to the person that and the picture that I knew I was um, because it, you know, all off season I've been preparing and then the appendectomy and it, it, I, I don't think it, um, I think it's difficult to explain how difficult it is uh, to be sitting out uh, for, you know, three, four, five, six weeks at a time and not being able to compete. Um, you know, I was just dying to get out there. And then once I went out and had a one inning or a three inning, you know, stint and felt good, then I was like, all right, well, now I'm back to 100% health when that wasn't necessarily the case. And so uh, I think I think definitely starting out a little bit unhealthy um, just kind of started the cycle of, of kind of, a little bit of failure, then that leads to frustration, which leads to more failure, which leads to more frustration. And, you know, getting myself out of it was, you know, was what was necessary for me to, to keep moving on. Yeah, Mark, one thing that's always impressed me when we've talked is you seem like a guy who's very aware of sort of the circumstances around you being high draft pick and, and a prospect and everything. And actually, I read the uh, one of the blog posts you wrote on, for those who don't know, Mark has a blog he's running this year. It's firstroundreflections.wordpress.com. I want to read a quote just from one of the posts you did uh, called Cut Day, um, and I just want to ask mm-hmm. you to expand a little bit on that. Uh, the quote is, I do not always enjoy playing this game, and I have not always felt at peace with my circumstances, but I will not allow my identity to be found in a game. I've learned the hard way and many times will be reminded the hard way when I find too much of my self-worth in this game. Um, I want to ask just what, if you got any feedback from people in baseball from, from that quote and some of that sentiment and what it is about that sentiment. You go on to explain how really what that is is, is uh, putting more of your personality into your religion and, and things uh, outside of baseball making that more of a priority. Um, how that sort of sentiment has helped you as a baseball player and also just if you did get any reaction from people within the game just about sort of having that approach. Yeah, I haven't I haven't talked to too many guys specifically about you know that post. Some some uh, within the next couple of days after I posted it said they read it and they enjoyed it and you know that they said I mentioned a lot of things that a lot of people you know wish they could they could say you know because it, it's a reality of baseball that a lot of people don't understand is it, it's not just during spring training that that happens. It, you know, guys are are released you know, constantly throughout the year. And, and it's just, you know, especially, you know, once the draft comes around, that's another, that's another, because you have a fresh crop of new, new talent coming in and there's not enough room for everybody. It's just the reality of the, of the game. Um, as far as, as me talking about my identity, not being found in the game. Uh, yes. Uh, I would say, you know, that goes towards my, my faith in Christ. Um, and I know a lot of Christian ballplayers kind of get this this rap as oh well you know his his priorities are are, are Christ and and so he's not very uh, motivated or very interested in in playing baseball or he has no motivation to to grow in this game um, you know because 
a Christian ball player, he understands where his hope and his future is, is found, and it's in, it's in our relationships with Christ. You know, whatever happens in this game, um, we'll learn to be okay with it because we have Christ. Um, and a lot of people, that doesn't, that doesn't really sit well with them because they say, well, oh, so it's just whatever happens, happens, and, and you'll be okay with it. Uh, and so, like, where's your motivation? Where's your drive to get better? And my, my argument to that, what I would say in response to that is my relationship with Christ gives me my drive and my motivation. It, 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 I think it perfects it, honestly, um, because, you know, in Christ, the, the, whole, the whole point of the gospel is that we are broken people and, and that we can't do anything on our own to get to heaven, right? And so Christ had to come to this earth, live the perfect life that we couldn't live, die on the cross, uh, and through through his death and his resurrection, we now have uh, eternal life if we believe. And there was nothing that I did to earn that or deserve that. And, and so there's, um, in the same way, in baseball, a lot of times, a lot of times you go through failure. And, you know, when you go through failure or when you have successes at the end of the day, it's one of those things where you are confident in where you are because God has placed you there. I don't know if that makes sense, but, but you know, I could, I could be stressing out about not being in the big leagues or not being at AAA right now, but I know that I have work to do right now. And I know that, like I said about Lancaster, all I've been given is today and, and my my desire is to go and make the most of today, to, to be the best I can be, um, to push my teammates, to, to, to build relationships with guys on the team, um, to get better as a baseball player, because that's exactly what God's called me to be. He's called me to be a baseball player. Um, granted, that's not my identity. My identity is found in Christ, but, but my occupation is a baseball player. And so because God has called me to be a baseball player, I'm going to be the best baseball player I can be. And I have peace knowing that I'm exactly where I need to be because if I would, you know, if I needed to be somewhere else, I trust that God would have me somewhere else. And so I have that confidence. Um, and then I have the, uh, the passion to, to be the best I can be. Um, and, and so now, I guess that's kind of a, a long way of, of explaining the whole identity of, of you know, not finding your identity in, a, in, in the game. You know, and as I mentioned in the, in the blog post, when you find your identity in something that's temporary or something that's shaky or something that depends on failure and success, you know, your identity will be shaken, it will be destroyed. And when that happens... Um, and I pray it, it never happens to anybody, but I know it does. Uh, it's devastating because that's when you, you, you're like, man, who am I? Like, what, what am I doing here? And, you know, I've felt that. I felt that I've had my identity in baseball and, and I can tell you it doesn't work out. He is Mark Appel, who's the top overall draft pick of the Houston Astros in the 2013 Major League Baseball first-year player draft. Sanford University product and one of a lot of very exciting guys coming up in this system right now with Carlos Correa and Mark and Vince Velasquez and Domingo Santana and all kinds of talent coming up in the system. But, Mark, before we get you out of here, 
I got to ask you this question because I feel like you're going to have a very unique perspective on it, and I'm a guy who likes to talk about food. Okay, you're a Texan native. You're playing in Texas uh-huh. at Whataburger Field, but you also attended college at Stanford University in California. So the question of all questions, are you an In-N-Out guy or are you a Whataburger <laughs> guy? My answer to you would be both. Uh, <laughs> Best possible answer. And- yeah, and and oh my gosh, we talk about this so many, so so much, and like during batting practice, like Waterburger in and out because you know we have a lot of California guys, and the, the in and out in and out burgers are phenomenal. I love them. Uh, Waterburger just has a greater variety. They have you know, and, and it's all very good. Um, you know, one of my favorite things at Whataburger is the honey butter chicken biscuit. Ooh. You know, I can't get that at In and Out. That sounds you know? delightful. And oh, it's phenomenal. <laughs> uh, only on the late night and breakfast menu, eleven p.m. to eleven a.m. If you're if you're wondering, but um, people but, at Whataburger, you, know, you can it, send your checks to Mark Appel at Whataburger Field in Corpus Christi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But uh, it's um, yeah, they're they're two very different things, both delicious. If I were to have to choose a burger uh, to eat today for dinner, which I probably won't. But uh, <laughs> I probably choose. I probably choose Water Burger. Okay, all right. So he's sticking with the hometown thing in Corpus Christi. I like yeah. it, Mark. Yeah. You know where the you know where the 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 honey chicken biscuit is buttered, shall we say? He's one of the really good guys in the minor leagues. He's going to be one of the really good guys in the major leagues real soon. Mark Appel, Astros top draft pick in 2013. Number two overall prospect in the organization, according to MLB.com. And uh, Mark, thanks a ton for joining us, man. And uh, best of luck the rest of this season. We appreciate the time. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Huge thanks to Mark Appel, the Houston Astros, for joining us here on episode number four of MILB.com's The Show Before the Show. They've got so much talent coming up in that system. That's one of the really exciting systems to watch, and there are a lot of players from other systems that we're really keeping graduating to the major leagues, and that's going to segue us into talking about some of these promotions because they have come fast and furious over the last couple, really just the last week almost, with Chris Bryant going up first. And now the big news from last night, the Chicago Cubs have called up infielder. He'll be a second baseman in the major league level at least to start Addison Russell makes the climb from triple a Iowa Jake your thoughts on Addison Russell going up yesterday I know you've talked to him uh, I talked to him for a story last year pretty soon after the trade when I think all of us were thinking like what are the Cubs going to do with all these middle infielders and now here he is at the major league level and it looks like he'll get a lot of time at second base uh, opposite Starlin Castro who's going to continue to hold things down as short yeah I talked to him last week he actually just played his first game at second base as a professional last Thursday which was also the night that Chris Bryan got promoted um, I talked to him that night just a little bit about kind of what that was like uh, he said he's he's worked there a little bit but he hasn't really played at second base he's not totally comfortable there he's getting a little better um, just because the Cubs are the Cubs they had a lot of guys at AAA who had played second base you mentioned all that, that middle infield depth so he has had a lot of people who were giving him advice on, on positioning and kind of where to be and how to react and things um, 
it was interesting. He he was pretty clear that he still considers himself a shortstop, and he's the Cubs have made it clear to him that they still think he's a shortstop long term. The quote I got from him was, "quote They want me to get fami- more familiar with second base. I believe they say I'm a shortstop, but they want me to get a few games under my belt at second base. I have no problem with that. It's a position that I find fun to play. It's definitely a different look from the other side of the base. I'm just trying to get more comfortable. Um, so it was interesting that he what do you think he played four games at second base, including over the weekend, and now he's up and doing it in the major leagues, which is just really out of necessity." Arzmeni Alcantara really struggling and uh, Tommy LaStella going down with an injury and not really sure how long he's going to be out. Um, I'll be interested to see how they play that long term because it sounds like Russell, uh, at least what I inferred from our conversation, is that he still very much considers himself to be a shortstop and wants to be a shortstop. Um, as long as Starling Castro was there and they have other guys who can play shortstop too, I'm not sure that's going to happen, even though I think maybe you'd get a split on, on if you pulled some industry people on whether they think Russell is the better shortstop or Castro is the better shortstop. Maybe you go with Castro just because he's the known quantity in the majors right now. Uh, interesting to see how that goes, but I do expect that he's going to transition pretty well offensively. Um, maybe you'll see a few too many strikeouts, but I don't think it's going to be anything to the effect that we saw with Alcantara or with Javier Baez. Um, and I'll be interested to see, too, when La Stella comes back and, and if Alcantara can rebound at AAA, what happens with those guys long term? Because those are two guys who the Cubs, I think, do want to have folded in their plans at some point, too. What? Yeah, I mean, like you said, the the interesting thing about this move is going to be whether or not both these guys are with this team for uh, at least the the rest of this season between Castro and Russell, because Russell was not just one of the top prospects position-wise in his system. He was obviously the top shortstop prospect in a, a system that's loaded with infield prospects, but he was one of the top shortstop prospects in all of baseball as well. So I don't think that you promote a guy like that to the majors with the idea of keeping him at second base. I think right now, Castro, like you said, I think you put it well, he's the known quantity at the major league level, but eventually, I think Addison Russell is going to be the long-term shortstop for the Chicago Cubs, which is fascinating because when Starlin Castro came up, he looked like the next big thing at shortstop. It shows you how quickly things sometimes can change, but Addison Russell, it obviously gives him uh, an added dimension to be able to play second base, and right now, if he starts to hit at the major league level, you kind of know what you have in Castro already. That's a heck of a middle infield in Chicago, and oh, by the way, you promote Chris Bryant last week, and Bryant hasn't homered yet, we know that, and everybody's been very anxiously awaiting that, but he's starting to get his feet wet at the major league level, he's starting to get acclimated, and we know what he brings in terms of his offensive approach. It was fascinating to watch him on his first couple days at the major league level obviously his first at bat was very much a welcome to the show kind of moment three <laughs> three strikes on three pitches from james shields all of them swinging and he went and took a seat uh hitless in that opening day but chris bryant's going to be there for the long haul we know that and now that he has russell at second base castro's there rizzo's there this team is loaded on the infield yeah and one thing that's been interesting seeing bryant in the majors for the first time is the, the thing where he sees a lot of pitches was something that was notable in the minor leagues, and it was actually a, a little bit of a problem early in his minor league career. I talked to Cubs farm director Jaron Madison at the end of the 2014 season for a few stories we were doing about Bryant, and he actually gave me this interesting quote, which sort of aligned with some things that I had seen just watching it on, on MILB.TV. Uh, the quote from Madison was, quote, There were times where he wasted some at-bats early where he could have been more aggressive. You think about all the at-bats he gave away this year and think about what his batting line would have been. It's scary how good he is and how good he's going to be in the future. Which, you think about a guy who had 43 home runs, his average was something like 330. I don't have it right in front of me. But the fact that the Cubs thought he gave away at-bats being a little too passive at times last year, I think that's something that you've actually you've seen a little bit since he's gone up to the majors. I think he's taken a few pitches that have been in the zone that maybe you wanted him to see more aggressive with. Um, I think that's something that's going to fix with time. But it also speaks just to his the absurd ability he has to hit and hit with power. Uh, when he has two strikes, when he's behind in the count, because that was a lot of the damage he did 
last year in the Southern League and in the Pacific Coastal League happened when he was behind in the count. Um, as he gets more experience, as he gets better at, at sort of working those counts and, and being aggressive in aggressive situations, I think that's something that's going to come just with experience and with getting reps against Major League pitchers and just figuring out kind of how they work. Um, the other hole with him is he's definitely a low ball hitter and a guy who maybe isn't going to hit as well against guys who can pump 99 up in the zone, which you're going to see a lot more of pretty consistently in the major leagues. Um, so I'm interested to see what I think the power is definitely going to translate. Uh, you worry a little bit about the strikeouts and what's going to happen with the batting average there. I know the the big comp for, for him that I've heard from a lot of people is a Troy Gloss kind of career with uh, big home run totals, passable defense at third base, and kind of a low batting average. I think that's that's reasonable, although I do expect to see Bryant probably move to the outfield. And the, the thing I'd like to see personally is just Addison Russell. They say, uh, for those who maybe saw either video or photos or in person, Russell in high school when he was a bigger guy, he lost a lot of weight between his junior year and his senior year of high school just so he could stay at shortstop he has the ability to put on a lot of good weight onto his frame muscle up a little bit maybe lose a little bit of range but add a little power if he does that at third base i think that might be the best way for the cubs to go long term but that's i mean that's just sort of my opinion based on things that i've seen and, and heard a little bit chicago has been getting all this pub on the cubs side because of those two guys going to the show but this week the white Sox also got some huge news in that their top prospect and mlb.com's number 15 overall prospect carlos rodon is headed up to the major leagues as well he actually arrived yesterday uh, addressed the media prior to the the series opener between the white Sox and the indians at u.s cellular field and rodon is an interesting case because the white Sox have openly said he's going to go to the bullpen to start Eventually, he'll be in the rotation, but right now we're not going to commit to a timetable on that. He told MLB.com yesterday, quote, For now, the plan is just to be in the bullpen. I haven't really spoken to them about it. That's a conversation for down the road. Rodon has been... When he was going into his final year at NC State, he was the clear-cut number one heading into the draft that next season. Uh, he fell off. His stock fell off a little bit just because of the way that his final season went in college. But when the White Sox nabbed him, he was very much a guy who profiled with the third overall pick in last year's draft as a front-end starter in a rotation going forward. So it's interesting that the White Sox are very committed early on to just getting him work out of the bullpen. Yeah, I, I, we've talked about this before we started recording, but I'm curious how much of that is just a matter of watching the pitch count with him. Uh, he's a guy who maybe has fewer pitch count concerns than some other college draft picks or first-round draft picks might have just because he has a really good body, a good sturdy frame. He's, he's logged a good amount of innings. Uh, he's been a little inconsistent with his performance. We haven't seen the medicals or anything. You don't know if that's a medical thing or mechanical thing or whatnot. I mean, I think he's going to be just lights out out of the bullpen. You're talking about a guy who can run up a mid-90s fastball with the, when his slider is on, it might be the best slider in Major League Baseball. It might be the best breaking pitch in Major League Baseball. Um, that's going to be just a lights-out pitch and fun to watch. Um, I do. What I would guess is that this is a matter of keeping the pitch count and watching the innings for him this year, and they don't want to throw him in the rotation from the start of the year and run his his innings kill, uh, count up over 200 or something. Uh, would expect that he'll be in the rotation at some point. He's certainly not supplanting David Robertson as the closer there in, in Chicago. If there's an injury to, injury to Robertson, maybe that adjusts things, but uh, would expect he'll work as, as a setup man or some sort of middle reliever for a little while. Maybe they give him into a, a long relief role to keep him stretched out, but I'd expect to see him in that rotation at some point around midseason at least. 
And there's a really good note from Scott Merkin at MLB.com who says, quote, his highest innings total came in 2013 for North Carolina State and 132 and a third. So while Rodon is now a full-fledged big league member, that rotation move might be a little ways off to control his first-year workload. That's one thing that we forget about Carlos Rodon. This isn't a situation where drafted in 2013, played an entire full minor league season last year, and now he's into the major leagues. Rodon was drafted in June, only saw you know a handful, comparatively, of games last year year as a professional and now is at the major league level on april 20th of his first full year in professional baseball so that's obviously something that the white Sox are very cognizant of that he has not seen a full length workload wire to wire for a professional season the way that a lot of these guys have does that count from working does that include the the team usa stuff he did in 2013 or is that just at nc state that's probably too many innings for him to just get at nc state that year i would imagine that seems like a lot of innings for just the college season but uh, yeah let's see I mean, Team USA is usually more limited innings than a guy who's on the Cape or something. But that's I, I, hadn't, I didn't look up the number before we did this. Should have done that. Better so, reason should do that. <laughs> but, I mean, it's obviously – that's right. such an exhausting thing for guys who get into their first full season. And so many pitchers especially talk about that where it seems like college position players can transition a little better because you play, you know, four or five games a week, but you're out there every day. When you're a starter, you go once a week in college. I mean, that's the biggest difference. So college starting pitchers who come out, go to the draft, and then – start at the professional ranks that's what they talk about is i really had to get used to going out every five days it was something that i did not know how to really do before so that was the that's the most interesting thing and actually according to uh, the baseball cubes college stats for carlos rodon all 132 and a third innings for him in 2013 did come at nc state he followed it up with 98 and two-thirds into leading into the draft okay so yeah i think he had a few more i don't know if those team usa numbers are counted somewhere or something but i think he had a few more thrown in there in 2013 too um so that's interesting, but but yeah. So he's throwing. I think that's still probably more innings than you're going to get out of your average college guy coming into the, to pro ball. Um, and certainly has the the body to handle the innings and everything. But yeah, you probably don't want him throwing more than 160, 170 this season. I wouldn't imagine. Six three two thirty five. Carlos Rodon. He's going to be a lot of fun to hey, watch. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of fun to watch. Yep. Yep. And then uh, the other guy who got called up this week, we'll talk about quickly, is Mets catcher Kevin Pilecki uh, getting the call because Travis Darno went down with a fracture in his wrist, I believe it was, on Sunday. Pilecki getting the call. He'll make his uh, make his debut on Tuesday. I saw he's in the lineup today. Uh, really kind of an advanced defensive catcher. Uh, tools are just sort of average, but a guy who gets a lot of positive reviews for his makeup. I think the one experience I've had with him that kind of stood out was I talked to him his rookie year when he was catching at short season Brooklyn. Um, the rotation there was entirely Hispanic guys. It was mostly guys from the Dominican. And Pilecki, he's a kid from Indiana, went to college at, uh, at Purdue, hadn't really had a whole lot of exposure to that, actually went out of his way to try to pick up some Spanish and learn some Spanish just to communicate with the pitching staff there. Not that he became fluent or anything, but was able to, to communicate and talk with those guys about baseball stuff. That is really cool. Stuff. That, that immediately just kind of jumps off the page as a guy who's overachieving and sort of knows what his role is at catcher. Um, you, you just talked to Kevin last week, I think, after he had a big game with Las Vegas. What's, uh, what are you expecting to see from him? Uh, yes. This, it was kind of funny. I talked to him uh, the night before the promotion, and the next day got the alert that uh, Darno was going on to the disabled list and figured that Ploiecki was going to be the guy to be called up. And I think the call comes for him at a really big time because he started off slow and then has just been torching the PCL. After going 0-3 for 
for 17 in his first four games. He was 8 for 18 over his last four and capped it off with that big night uh, for the Las Vegas 51s in the AAA Pacific Coast League back on the 19th, or actually on the 18th, uh, so a few days ago. That was a 17-4 to win for Las Vegas over Fresno. And... Plowecki in that game doubled to drive in uh, two runs at the start of the seventh inning and then doubled later on in that inning and drove in three more runs. So a pretty solid seventh inning for Kevin Plowecki. But what he said was, uh, talking about his start and then the way that he had been kind of surging over the last week or so, he said, quote, it's a big relief. Starting off the way I did was a little bit frustrating. That's how this game works sometimes, but it was important for me to work through that and make some adjustments. The last few games I've been able to make some little minor adjustments and it's worked out for me. If I'm a Mets fan... What excites me about that is this is a kid who has that lesson very, very recently implanted in his brain. This isn't something where he struggled at advanced A three years ago and figured out a way to get through it, and then all of a sudden was set. For him to start off a season kind of struggling and then get it figured out and really put together a string of good games and then on that momentum get called up to the big leagues, that I think is huge. And also, he's worked a lot with the top prospects in this organization. Obviously, Noah Syndergaard threw that night. Uh, Kevin didn't catch that night. He was actually a designated hitter, but he was observing from the dugout, said he was watching his Noah hit 99 on the radar gun and just talked him up a lot. Said it looked, from my vantage point, like he was throwing well. The pitch count kind of got him a little earlier than he would have liked, but I like seeing that from a catcher as well. A guy who's in the lineup as a DH but is still paying attention to what his team's top prospect is doing on the mound just really comes across as a very, very mature guy, and I think he's going to handle the transition to New York pretty well. Yeah, that's a, you mentioned him knowing Syndergaard and some of those guys. That's something I picked up on just trying to, to be a reporter and figure out how those guys in Las Vegas were throwing or back when he was in Binghamton. He's a really good guy to talk to just about what his pitchers are doing. He's very attuned to sort of things they're working on, things they do well, things they could improve, things he needs to say to just kind of boost their ego or, or knock them down if they need knocked down or something. He's uh, been one of my favorite interviews coming up through the minors just from that perspective. He's a good guy to, to talk to and, and just very, very aware, very heady. Um, I think he's, he's going to do pretty well in the majors. Maybe not not hit so much, but but certainly will be a guy who sticks around just based on the makeup. And the I think he's a good bet to adjust to a lot of the things that require adjusting to for catchers at the major league level. This is a ton of fun. I mean, we're only two weeks into the season and already seeing Bryant and Russell and Rodon and Plowecki headed to the major league level. It's uh, not only does it is it exciting for us to watch those guys at the big league level, but it's exciting now because you get to see the next guys step into those spots in terms of where they're ranked in the organizations and where they're ranked on MLB com's top 100 and it's fun this is already a fun time of year and it's very very early to see all these guys heading up but uh get ready because more of them are on the way we're going to shift gears and uh head down to one of the places where a lot of these guys start really making their jumps off the florida state league an advanced a league and a place that kind of separates the the best talent from from talent that maybe isn't going to make this climb to the big league level and our good pal benjamin hill took a tour down to the florida state league last week and ben joins us to talk about it next Joining us now, presumably with a fantastic tan after his last, you know, week, 10 days or so, however long it's been, is our good pal Benjamin Hill from Ben's Biz Blog. Uh, back from a solid swing down to the state of Florida. Ben, how was Florida, man? It was good, though. My tan could be described as <laughs> mediocre at best. <laughs> what is that all about? 
Well, I guess they're night games for the most part. It probably doesn't help out. Uh, at least the day to just be sitting by. That's by true. The, yeah, you should have just pool. been sitting out in the sun somewhere. Right. That's that's the uh, myth of of going on these road trips. <laughs> that, that wherever you go, you just you know hang out by the beach or whatever the attraction is. But the reality is, uh, staying up till three in the morning, sleeping late, staying in the hotel room into the early afternoon, and uh, just feeling very anxious until I get to the ballpark, and then things are good. And then you're in your own little comfort zone where you get to do things like hallucinate watching a Harry Carey superstar. Sorry, a Harry Canary superstar, which was one of my favorite vines of yours from uh, the road trip to Florida. But tell us about the the swing through Florida and uh, who all you got a chance to see. Yeah, this is my first road trip of the year, and you know, kick things off in Florida because why not? You know, it's tough to sometimes make an itinerary for April because obviously the uh, short season teams aren't playing. So there's some areas where you definitely want to include them and. Other places, it's like 30 degrees or still snowing or, you know, freezing rain or what have you. So Florida was a good place to start. And uh, started in Bradenton, saw the Marauders there, and then went to the Tampa Yankees, the Dunedin Blue Jays, the uh, Jupiter Hammerheads, the Jackie Robinson game in Vero Beach, um, the St. Lucie Mets, the Brevard County Manatees, and then finally got out of the Florida State League and ended the trip up north with the Jacksonville Suns of the AA Southern League. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, the Jackie Robinson game. That's in Vero Beach. That's where Dodgertown was, where Jackie Robinson had his first couple of spring trainings. Wait, how much of Dodgertown is still sort of intact or sort of an homage to that first uh, those first spring trainings there? Kind of what's that that park and that setup look like? It's a really interesting place, and you know, this is the first time I've been there, so I can't say firsthand how much it's the same going back to when it opened in 1948. But definitely, the aesthetic is there. The signage and the landscaping, um, it really revolutionized spring training, and it's great to see it still operating today. Um, <clears throat> these days, it's officially called Historic Dodger Town, and it hasn't hosted minor league baseball since 2008, but they use it as a like a multi-use, multi-sport training complex, and what used to be barracks are now kind of uh, motel rooms on the grounds, so um, people training there. Uh, can actually stay on the grounds. Uh, the day I was in town for the Jackie Robinson game on April 15th, which is a, an official Florida State League game, there was also the Montreal Alouettes of the uh, Canadian Football League training on the grounds of Dodgertown. So it's just that kind of place. There's all sorts of sports going on. Um, it is rooted in baseball history and, and really cool to poke around and explore that. But it definitely exists um, very uniquely you know, here in the 21st century as well. Ben, tell us a little bit about just kind of what the, the feel was during that game uh, because it was between the Brevard County Manatees and the St. Lucie Mets, and you're playing at a, a facility that obviously is a lot more of a throwback feel than most minor league ballparks now, which is cool because it gives you kind of just that baseball-only atmosphere. So what was the game atmosphere like? I know it was a packed game. Yeah, first of all, <clears throat> this is um, the game takes place at Holman Stadium, which is on the grounds of Dodgertown. Um, as I said, they haven't hosted minor league baseball there since 2008, and it is an old school stadium. There's no dugouts, for example. There's just basically um, just the players standing on the field, kind of uh, you know lowered down a few stairs where a dugout would be, but they're just out in the open. Um, really simple layout, very open, great um, trees down the um, down the right field and left field line, just giving it a, a lot of atmosphere. And, you know, the Florida State League is a very hard league to draw fans for various reasons that would probably merit its own segment. But 
you know, they drew 6,000 people to this game, which is a, a huge crowd, almost a sellout. And you could tell people just really wanted to go there, to go back to Dodger Town, to have a reason to see a legit you know, professional game in that old school atmosphere that really does evoke you know, what I imagine baseball was like on a regular basis in the 50s, but nowadays that we don't really get to see very often. So, I mean, do they have, like, a, a DJ playing music and stuff like a normal game, or is it an organ, or what's what do they do as far as in-game entertainment things, and how's that compared to your normal minor league game? Well, it's kind of a mix. I mean, because they don't host minor league baseball there anymore, they don't operationally really have those sort of things, you know, set up and ready to go. But the game was between the St. Lucie Mets and the Brevard County Manatees, and St. Lucie was the home team. So they kind of brought you know, a skeleton out of their normal operation out to the park, and they were responsible for the entertainment. So there was a portable PA, and they did a few of their between-inning games. But it was minimal because, you know, that wasn't... They were the home team technically, but they weren't too familiar with that ballpark. And being built over 60 years ago, it's not too equipped for, um, you know, for modern-day entertainment needs, and nor should it be and it's it wasn't really a concern but it was kind of an interesting thing to to see a uh the st Lucie mets have to kind of bring their operation to that to that old school environment ben you noted that the florida state league is kind of a challenge attendance wise sometimes just because there's a ton of mitigating factors to get fans in at a florida state league game but from some of the pictures and some of the games you went to obviously there were some good turnouts for some of the games uh what were some of the other highlights going around the florida state league because a lot of those ballparks you're in the the host facilities for the major league team spring training so it's kind of a different feel from some other minor league parks. But tell us just atmosphere-wide, food-wise, what were uh, what were some of the other highlights? Yeah, um, I'd say atmosphere-wise, I started in Bradenton, the, uh, the Bradenton Marauders, and McKechnie Field, I think, had a great atmosphere. It was their home opener, so it was definitely more people than an average Florida State League game. But that's a facility that really splits the difference nicely between, you know, having being really simple and old and having a lot of history it's it was there's been a stadium on that site for something like 90 years now but also a ton of renovations in recent years to make it you know amenable to the modern day needs as well so i really enjoyed starting the trip at that one and it didn't feel as cavernous as some of the other uh, especially tampa yankee st lucy mets to a degree these are nice facilities but once the big league team goes up north after spring training it's just really hard to kind of foster a uh, intimate energetic atmosphere in these in these big uh, in these big ballparks so the florida state league is tough for that way but you can definitely every place you know is its own adventure it's its own story and you know i certainly enjoyed being there yeah one thing i noticed uh, being in florida for spring training was pirates fans around maybe it's because the pirates have been in Bradenton for a long time pirate city seems to be a place that has a lot of people who show up for even the backfield games it's interesting you you mentioned that i do want to ask we, we ran the interview you did with the uh, the gm of the Bradenton team the gm Bradenton team or was it somebody with Bradenton who helped deliver a, a baby in the park last year is that a, a florida state league initiative to improve attendance is to just bring people <laughs> Kids. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's a pretty unique thing to uh, to have the, a ball game end with more people in the park than when it started. So that is definitely the goal. Um, no, but were there any other interesting? We heard that interview. Any other interesting people you came across, or interviews you did, or just stories you kind of heard? And that's the thing you like doing on these trips. Yeah, definitely. I'll be writing um, for probably the next several weeks, kind of writing stories. You know, I've met some interesting fans, um, kind of cool team initiatives. Um, so it goes all over the place. Um, it's still fresh on my mind because I ended my trip in Jacksonville. But as you guys probably know. It's the last season of ownership for uh, 
Peter, you know, Pedro Bragan, and uh, whose father bought the team 30-some years ago. And, you know, he's just really an iconic figure at the ballpark. So it was really interesting to talk to him. And he, his office, I mean, he freely admits he's a hoarder. He's a pat, pack rat. His office from a life in baseball is just amazing. Hats and posters and pennants and plaques and trophies, every square inch of space. Yeah, we had a photo of that. I think you ran out. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that was indicative of just the whole office as well, just every room in the front office and the hallways. So there was so much personality there and uh, i really enjoyed kind of diving into that a little bit for sure and that's going to just be a really interesting story to follow as well with new ownership taking over next year you know ken babby he's a young guy he's only 35 he's not from that area you know he bought akron and turned them into the rubber ducks so i think to compare and contrast the last season of the bragan family ownership with ken babby coming in is just kind of an interesting ongoing story in jacksonville and and that was definitely a a team i enjoyed visiting but i enjoy visiting them all you know for the record he is benjamin hill you can find him on hill at you can find him on hill you can find him on twitter at ben's biz you can find the blog on ml blogs bensbiz.mlblogs.com and uh ben what's coming up next road trip wise Road trip wise, I'm going to settle in back here in New York City for about a month, try to make sense of my life. And <laughs> then uh, later in May, I'm going to be hitting the Midwest, almost all Midwest League, uh, starting in Kane County and hitting Quad Cities and Clinton and uh, Peoria. And at least one I'm forgetting, but also ending in Omaha. So the Midwest, late May. That'll be the next trip, and that'll be the second trip of five. So now that the season's in motion, I'm just trying to get swept up in the momentum and you know, hope I don't get swallowed whole by this uh, gigantic entity that is minor league baseball. You're doing it the smart way. You're getting all of the humid stops out of the way first before we get into like July and August. Nicely done. Yeah, well, talk to me when I'm in Biloxi. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Benjamin Hill, Ben, we'll uh, talk to you next week, man. All right. Benjamin Hill purchasing things from my eBay recommendations for him is the highlight of my week. <laughs> and really excited to talk to Ben about his first road trip of the 2015 season. Go give Ben a follow on Twitter. He's at Ben's, and you can check out the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to try to find everybody's interest in the office. Since I don't work there with you guys, I'm just going to send you all eBay listings of things I think you might like. You, you're so a, gonna a go now, Jake. man of many hats around here. We've shown <laughs> you for all of our needs. Producing podcasts, shopping on eBay. <laughs> I'll be everybody's personal shopper. I know Kelsey likes M&M's. I can, That's uh, true. You know the whole office likes M&M's except me? I'm the only guy who is Are not, you really? Yeah, no, I'm not a... No M&M's at all? She has, she has all these constantly. It's a rotating uh, bag of M&M's on her desk. Wow. I'm, I'm the only person who's never had to contribute because I never take any. That's I don't, amazing. I, I, not, not my thing. Not my jam. Okay, so like no, like not a specific flavor. Like she gets peanut, and you hate peanut. You're just not in M and M's at all. I, just, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a big chocolate guy, so that's that's probably where that comes from. Yeah. Huh. All right, Jake. I'm not going to be sending you eBay listings for chocolate products then. Skittle. See, send Skittles. things down. Okay, see, I'm a Skittles guy, and I'm fine with that. And whoever replaced lime with green apple in Skittles is a person who needs to be banished to another planet. I'm actually okay with the green apple. Are you really? I'll let you. I'll let you die on that hill. That's- <laughs> I take these big, bold, controversial, hot take stands. <laughs> Let me tell you. This week in MILB and Minor League Baseball, we got all kinds of fun stuff coming up. Uh, before we dive into 
Some of the things that we're excited about for this week. Some big news today coming out of the minor league offices in St. Petersburg, Florida. Minor league baseball announced today, which we're recording on Tuesday. So by the time you hear this on Thursday, it could have been out there for a couple of days for you. Uh, that MILB will return to CBS Sports Network for a second season with 10 marquee regular season games to be televised on the 24 hour cable home of CBS Sports from late May through early August. 18 teams, six leagues, 15 MLB affiliates will be featured on the Thursday night minor league baseball game of the week. First one of those is coming up in just over a month. Uh, the El Paso Chihuahuas will take on the Round Rock Express Padres affiliate at a Rangers affiliate. That'll be at 8 p.m. Eastern time on May 28th, the first of 10 for this season. Those are fun. I loved watching those last year. Yeah, no, it's great to see. I mean, you know, we get to watch a lot of the games on MLB.tv, but it's nice when you got a, a real camera crew and everything in there and, and getting the, the CBS experience and definitely cool enough for those guys to be on a, on a TV network where they can have more family and things tune in. It's exciting for the players. All right, Jay, tell us what else we got coming up this week. Yeah, we got some pitching matchups. We uh, we pulled off the the MILB.TV docket that might interest you. Uh, if we get this out by Wednesday, Wednesday night, we're going to have Cody Medeiros pitching. For, uh, he's a Brewers prospect pitching in Wisconsin. He's going to be pitching against Cedar Rapids. Medeiros is interesting. He's a first-rounder last year, left-hander. The really nice sinker so far this year. He's allowed 23 balls in play, and 22 of them have been ground balls. So you can tune into that and just see if anybody can even lift the ball in the air against Medeiros. Uh, on Thursday, pitching for Salem is going to be the Red Sox Trey Ball. He's a guy who struggled last year with Salem. He's supposedly been much better this year. I haven't got to see him in person yet. That's probably one I'll be tuning into. Um, just to see, suppose the velocity is a little up and everything is, is a little bit sharper. He's pitching at 7 p.m. on Thursday. And then on Friday, we got a really nice pitching matchup in Erie. You have Pirates top prospect Tyler Glass now pitching for Atlanta. And then Tigers prospect Austin Kubitza pitching for Erie. That game's at 6.35. And all those you can see on MILB.tv. I like those Altoona games because, uh, well, the home games, you get to tune into the sweet, dulcet tones of one Mike Passanisi. But Greg Gagne and Erie, who will have the call in that Altoona-Erie game, is fantastic as well. So uh, Name-dropping all your broadcasters. Name-dropping all these minor league broadcasters. You know me. <laughs> And uh, in my eBay purchase, purchase prowess, that's what I'm going to name drop for the rest of the the rest of the show from now on. Oh, we need to get your, your own segment. What's Tyler <laughs> buying this week? What's Tyler wasting his? What old timey Denver baseball products on eBay is Tyler wasting his money on this week? Um, who, who, who was it you were shopping for on eBay when you found? So I I go on every once in a while and I'll just search for the Denver Zephyrs or the Denver Bears. So I searched uh, Denver Zephyrs and. I don't even normally I'll try to sort so it doesn't bring up like game programs or cards or things like that. But for whatever reason, a scorecard came up, said designated eater on it. And I was like, I got to get this to Ben. So I tweeted it at Ben yesterday and now two dollars and seventy five cents plus shipping later. It's going to be in Ben's uh, office, I would imagine, somewhere. Yeah, because he because he doesn't have enough things on his cube already. (laughs) I don't don't know. You haven't been here. You haven't seen his cube. His cube is just I mean, you can imagine he's the minor league promotions guy. So he gets everything sent to him. I do love share. that he doesn't share with any of us. Every once in a while, we get those emails that are stuff. like, yeah, exactly. He's like, I got a pile of stuff on my desk that I don't want anymore. Just come by and take it. Which, by the way, being the one, it's me and Josh Jackson who are the two remotely based guys. And someday I'm going to have to commiserate with Josh about this. But being the guys who are not in the office, the worst thing in the world is getting the food emails. It's like, oh, we have fresh cookies on the table and whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I can't have those. It's the worst. This is the worst, Jake. You you missed out on artichoke pizza on opening oh, day. You always get pizza. We got the artichoke this year, which for those in New York City who have been in New York City, that's that's 
pretty good. Not, not the best New York pizza, but pretty Jake, solid. Step let me, up. Let me ask you this question just before we get out of here. If you're going to go into a, a, a pizza place in New York, you're going to order a slice of pizza. It doesn't have any toppings on it, only cheese. How do you order that? I would like one slice of what? Pizza. Do you say? Do you have any descriptor for that? If it's only a slice of cheese pizza, I just say one plain, one slice plain. You say plain? plain. Unbelievable! All right, we say cheese wait, 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 out wait, wait, here. You can't just sign us off after that. What is what is wrong with saying plain? <laughs> I had a big debate recently over what a slice of plain pizza is because uh, this actually is kind of. What do you think? It's just bread. On a baseball tangent, there was a fascinating story in the Wall Street Journal about what exactly the term "batting around" means, which Deadspin yeah. profiled yesterday. If, if you haven't read that, go check that out because a lot of people have differing opinions on that. But this is like the white and gold of the blue and black dress. To me, a slice of plain pizza is sauce pizza, just the crust and the sauce. Where where have you ever ordered just a piece of pizza with only sauce? See, I, in uh, in Rhode Island, in Providence, Rhode really? Island, I went to a place called uh, Caserta's, and they give you a, a sauce pizza. Anywhere else? Uh, you know, I feel like I've had it here somewhere. So you can think of one place that does it this way, and you think the rest <laughs> of us. No, but this is my argument. It's a che- It's a slice of cheese pizza because the cheese is on the pizza. You call it a slice of cheese pizza. Like when I order a pizza, I say, all right, I'll have half cheese, half pepperoni. I don't say half plain, half pepperoni. It's not a pizza. What if it comes with little pizza. model planes on it? How would they know? It's not a pizza if it doesn't have cheese. <laughs> then it's just bread with sauce. <laughs> This is a conversation it's we need a, to get. It's a light step up from bread and butter. We need to get Craig Goldstein from Baseball Perspectives in on this conversation. He's the king of debating what is what is and what is not a sandwich. I think we need to have debates of what is and what is not pizza. You see, you see what Columbus did with Craig Calcaterra. On, no, uh, they, had their, they had their ten cent hot dog day on. I think it was Monday, <laughs> and they tweeted at Craig about coming to get a ten cent sandwich, and he lost it. <laughs> That is outstanding. That the the uh, the Columbus Clippers Twitter account, as far as minor league teams go, they're uh, they're on their game. They're great. That's I the- once like two years ago, I bought a copy of MLB The Show. Started doing Road to the Show. I was in Double A Akron, on the verge of getting promoted. I tweeted something about it, and the Clippers responded, "Send us a screenshot when you get called up." You guys are outstanding. <laughs> uh, we're into that full time of the minor league season. We're already having. We got teams trolling national writers. This is fantastic. <laughs> He's Jake Signer. I'm Tyler Mon. You can get in touch with the podcast, by the way. Email us, podcast at MILB.com. You can follow MILB on Twitter. We are at MILB. Jake is at Jake underscore Signer. I am at Tyler Mon. And uh, get us in touch. Let us know what you think. Subscribe, rate, review on iTunes, and check us out on MILB.com this week and throughout the rest of the season. Big thanks, as always, to Benjamin Hill. Big thanks to Mark Appel from the Houston Astros. And big thanks, as always, to you, Jake. Fantastic work. I enjoy Skittles without the green apple. And a plain pizza is a pizza with no cheese. That's that's all wrong, but I'll just, whatever, we got to (laughs) go. Talk to you guys next week.